Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Run Up listeners. You hear a lot from me, but I don't hear enough from you. So I'm asking you to take our new listener survey. It's not some marketing scheme. It's questions like how you discovered the podcast and what else you're listening to. It's quick and it's painless. And here's the bonus. It will bring us closer together. I promise. Go to nytimes.com slash runupsurvey, all one word. That's nytimes.com slash runupsurvey. Now, on to the show. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. When you're running for president, I think you have an obligation to be healthy. <laughs> Every time I think about Trump, I get allergic. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. She does not have Secretary to win. Secretary Clinton. Woo, okay. Here's my question. What kind of genius loses a billion dollars in a single year? I understand the tax laws better than almost anyone which is why I am one who can truly fix them. I understand it, I get it. And I have brilliantly used those laws. USA, USA, USA. From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. The worst damn fool mistake I ever made. It is not a stepping stone to anything except oblivion. About as useful as a cow's fifth teat. It never interfered with my mandatory 11 hours of sleep a day. The most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. The job is just awkward. An awkward job. What awful role are these people describing? The vice presidency of the United States. The vice presidency is the biggest sidekick gig in the world, the ultimate Robin to the ultimate Batman, the most famous understudy there is. A person who, barring national tragedy, will never actually take the stage. And yet, it's also a coveted political position. People beg for it. And not just because it's a stepping stone. Because in the right hands and with permission from the president, the power of the vice presidency can be unlimited. Is that sort of power available to Tim Kaine or to Mike Pence? Would Donald Trump ever let go of it? Would Hillary Clinton ever share it? We'll put those questions to a couple of my colleagues here at The Times. But first, we'll start with the most infamous example of vice presidential power in modern memory, Dick Cheney. Peter Baker has written the book on that relationship. It's called Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. Peter joins us from Jerusalem, where he's just begun as our bureau chief. The vice presidency is a very derivative job. It's entirely dependent on the amount of power and authority and discretion that the president gives it. I mean, there is the uh, responsibility of being the president of the Senate, but that's pretty much uh, non-existent these days. So Dick Cheney did something that no previous vice president had done, really made it into an important power center inside an administration. Remember, you know, previous vice presidents all but disappeared from the landscape. Woodrow Wilson's vice president said, there was a famous joke. There were two brothers. One went to sea and one became vice president and neither was heard from again. 
So, wow. you know, Cheney changed that. He's the one who came in and said there is something uh, to be done with this job. And he, in effect, made it a, you know, a virtual prime ministership for a little while. You, you know, uh, he had been White House chief of staff. In some ways, he uh, adopted some of the same things he had done under the Ford administration in that role. What was it that Dick Cheney saw about the possibilities of the vice presidency that his less empowered predecessor had somehow failed to see or realize? Well, first of all, he had a president who wanted him to be empowered. That's the most important thing. Something that was different about Cheney than almost any vice president in our lifetime was he did not plan to run for president when he was done with the job. So he didn't aspire to the other job. He didn't think about what was going to happen in Iowa or New Hampshire if he did this or that. Uh, that made him different. And that made him less of a threat, therefore, to the number one person, the president, who then was willing to give him the kind of authority that Cheney really desired. And he understood Washington in a way probably that almost none of his predecessors really did. You raise a really fascinating point, which is this job is about how much the president wants the vice president to be empowered, which leads me to ask, do you need a weak president to have a strong vice president? I think in a way you need a strong president to have a strong vice president, because I think it's the, uh, the weak ones who aren't self-confident who keep the vice president at a distance. Uh, the ones who are strong and self-confident don't worry that a vice president is going to eclipse them. Don't worry that a vice president is going to be seen as influential. And so, you know, I think Barack Obama empowered Joe Biden in some ways like that. He didn't feel threatened by Joe Biden. He wasn't really, I think, temperamentally the same kind of person, but I think he was willing as a confident president to have an older, seasoned veteran of Washington at his side giving him advice. Didn't take it all the time, but didn't feel uh, that Biden was uh, you know, a competitor. When we think about Dick Cheney, we have to ask whether what he achieved can be replicated. And one of the challenges of that is that he was such a unique and known figure within the Bush dynasty. He'd served the father and then serves the son. How important was that factor? And therefore, you know, kind of this really special blend, kind of secret sauce thing that would be hard to find again? It would be hard to find again. And there are a couple of things. One, as you say, he was a known commodity in the in the Bush family. And George W. Bush had talked to his father about what kind of vice president he would be, and his father recommended him highly. Secondly, it you know it was a presidency that we thought at the beginning, certainly George W. Bush thought at the beginning, was going to be a domestic-oriented presidency. And it turned out to be a foreign policy-dominated presidency after 9-11, and that's what Dick Cheney's particular experience as Secretary of Defense you know, in the House and the Intelligence Committee and his own particular interests came into into the fore and made him, in effect, a more dominant figure than he might have been. During the Cold War, he had done these exercises every year where they speared off a certain number of officials to a mountain place and pretend that Armageddon has happened. How do you reconstitute a government in that kind of circumstance? So he had thought a lot about chemical weapons and weapons of mass destruction and the possible impacts on a government. And so when 9-11 happened, he proceeded on a number of policy funds to sort of advance a strategy. Very tough interrogations, not considering the Geneva Conventions to be applicable to these enemy combatants. And, you know, he was able to make those things happen because of the force of his experience, the force of his intellect and his personality. So the people who thought that caution was a little bit more warranted, like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, he just outmaneuvered them. And he uh, uh, was able to take his position, which didn't have any particular statutory responsibility for these things, and make it into the most powerful driver of policy in that period. At some point, President Bush cools on Vice President Cheney. 
and there's a real distancing in the relationship. And to me, that would seem once again to highlight the fundamental limitations of the job because it's so reliant on the interpersonal dynamics between the president and the vice president. Just how iced out at some point was Dick Cheney and and how could he or did he at all get to claw his way back in? Yeah, it really is dependent on where you are with the president. And, uh, you know, it's the one job you can't be fired from, at least. Uh, Unlike a cabinet position or an agency directorship, a president can't fire you. But the president could leave you in the old executive office building never to have anything to do at all. You remember, actually, it wasn't until Walter Mondale that a vice president even had an office in the West Wing. So, you know, there's no guarantee that you get to do anything as vice president. And in the second term, George W. Bush did begin to move away from Dick Cheney. He began to have second thoughts about some of the policies that Cheney uh, was advocating, and he began to think that he needed to find ways of compromising in order to create a structure for a national security architecture that would survive him, assuming a Democrat would take power. So he went to Congress and got their permission uh, to continue some of the surveillance things. He went to Congress and got legislation to govern military commissions that would try suspected terrorists. He resisted when Cheney urged him to think about bombing Syria when they discovered a nuclear uh, facility there. He resisted any effort to go up military against Iran. And so by the end, you know, President Bush and Vice President Cheney were on the other side of a lot of these big issues that were confronting the administration at that point. Peter, for your book, you sat down with Cheney and you had a chance to reflect with him on what he'd done. Did he think that he'd reshaped the vice presidency into something really new and different? Well, I think he did. I think he understood that he had a different kind of role. You know, he had visited with Dan Quayle uh, right before taking office, and Quayle said, well, you know, you'll be going to a lot of funerals like I did. And Cheney told him, no, I have a different understanding. He had a president who wanted to empower him, who wanted him to play a more substantive role. He understood by the end that he and President Bush were no longer on the same page on a lot of these things. And he was pretty pretty philosophical about it. He wasn't bitter. At least he didn't express that to me. And I think he just understood that, you know, he had a few good years. And the rest of the time in the administration was sort of spent playing kind of defense, trying to protect the things that he felt like he had accomplished. So he understood more than anybody just how derivative the role really is. Peter, thank you so very much for joining us all the way from Jerusalem. Well, thanks for having me. It's always great talking to you. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look. 
Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So Peter Baker argues that Cheney's influence was unprecedented for a time and deeply reliant on a special set of circumstances. This campaign feels like another special circumstance to historically disliked presidential nominees, one with no political experience. These running mates were chosen with that in mind to help get these unpopular nominees elected. Former Virginia Governor Tim Kaine for Hillary Clinton and sitting Indiana Governor Mike Pence for Donald Trump. But what happens when one of these pairings actually gets to the White House? Are they supporting actors or are they leading men? Here to talk about that kind of delicate balance are Amy Chozik and Jonathan Martin, who've covered Pence and Kaine for years. I want to start by asking both of you to tell us about these two vice presidential nominees. Amy, who is Tim Kaine and what does he do for Hillary Clinton? Tim Kaine is a former governor of Virginia. He was the mayor of Richmond, sort of worked his way up. But he's uh, fluent in Spanish. He grew up in Jesuit schools in Kansas City. His father owned an ironworking shop, you know, has that kind of Midwestern, salt-of-the-earth background. Then he went to Honduras when he was at Harvard Law. He took a year off, learned fluent Spanish, worked with the missionaries there. And his political worldview is very much, as Hillary Clinton's is, rooted in his faith. He learned a lot about what they call liberation theology in Central America and how you do good deeds in order to serve God. And while he's devoutly Catholic and Hillary Clinton is very uh, Methodist, they, they hardly knew each other when she started her Veep search, but they really sort of bonded over that similar motivating factor of their of their faith and their and also I'd say their kind of pragmatic, centrist approach to enacting liberal policies. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think at heart they, they both are fairly ideological, but they're also such politicians in the sense that they are willing to kind of if not mask, at least curb some of their more ideological instincts for the purpose of incremental gains and obviously their own ambitions, too. They're very similar in that sense. So, Jonathan, who's Mike Pence and what does he do for Donald Trump? Mike Pence uh, is also a conventional, traditional politician, somebody who served in Congress, is now a governor. Um, even before he got to Congress, he ran a couple times for Congress and lost. So he's wanted to be in politics for some time. He also did a stint as a talk radio show host, um, I think casting himself as a uh, decaf version of Rush Limbaugh. So he is somebody who mixes a kind of fierce conservative ideology, speaking of folks who are ideological, with a sort of, um, you know, Indiana nice uh, demeanor. He grew up in a fairly small community in southern Indiana and has that kind of Midwestern kindness to him. He's very earnest, um, almost borderline severe at times. He can be, uh, he sort of has that look to his face that can be really, really sober. Um, he helps 
Trump because he's Trump's link to the traditional party. He's everything that Trump is not. Uh, You know, he's a hawk when it comes to foreign policy. At least he was more of a free trader. And he can sort of talk the language of conservatism in a way that comes easy and that Trump can't. Trump seems to want, and maybe even he really needs, a big vice president. And our own uh, colleague Robert Draper reported in the Times Magazine that Trump tried to entice John Kasich with an offer that was basically like, be my president, we'll just call you vice president. And, And I wonder if Mike Pence got that same offer. Do we suspect he did? It's kind of hard to imagine that he didn't, right? Yeah, I doubt it was laid out to him that bluntly, but I have no doubt at all that it was clear to him, both in what was implied and also just in his own deduction of the situation, that if he took this opportunity and they did win, that he would be able to carve out a unique and, yes, influential role as vice president to somebody who has no experience in Congress, no experience really in any elected office at all, doesn't know Washington, and Pence does. And that was going to afford Pence real opportunities to sort of flex his muscle as a vice president. Now, that said, it's kind of a double-edged sword because you also ensure that you're going to be overshadowed when it comes to the sort of public side of the office, right? So Pence knew that, that while he was going to be able to carve out a niche, he was going to take a back seat, really, because Trump is such a big personality. But clearly to him, it, it was worth the uh, worth the chance. Well, he's gotten a crash course in taking a back seat since the rollout, right? He barely spoke at that rollout. <laughs> no, it's incredible. And he has this line on the campaign show. He calls himself kind of B-list political celebrity. So, you know, he, he is self-aware. But look, he was not a sure thing to win his reelection in Indiana this year. Keep in mind, he was on the ballot this year. And he was going to have a tough race. So you know, he saw this as a kind of better opportunity, the assumption being either we win and I can sort of be a real player in the administration of somebody who doesn't know politics, doesn't know Washington, or we lose and I can use this as a springboard to run myself for president down the road and cast myself as somebody who was able to kind of try and keep Trump competitive and prevent him from <laughs> – declaring war on on other Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. The jury's still out, by the way. But it's almost like the opposite with Clinton and Kane, because she purposely, at the rollout in Miami, let Kane speak for an hour. She probably spoke for 10 minutes, just sat in the back, gave him. But but at the same time, there's an understanding that he probably won't be a very powerful vice president, given her experience in Washington, her husband in the administration, along with all of these old Washington hands she has around her. So, you know, the projecting of, of he's very important on the campaign. He's a partner. I'm going to let him talk longer than I speak. His name is the same size on the sign is all sort of in contrast to the Pence-Trump relationship. But in reality, I think Pence would probably exert much more power in an, in an Yeah, that's a really good point. It, it's uh, symbolism versus versus reality, right? Uh, Jonathan, let, let me ask you, can Donald Trump handle having a big, powerful vice president given his well-known sensitivities and insecurities? Um, if it's not framed as that, yes, right? It's all, it's all about the public perception for a Trump, right? If the media portrays it as such, then he wouldn't be comfortable with it. If Pence is doing things behind the scenes that make clear that he does have a huge footprint and he is somebody who's actually making decisions and enacting policy, but it's not being covered in the press, then Trump wouldn't care very much, right? Trump's operating style is entirely driven by press coverage. I mean, how many times, guys, have we seen that play out in this campaign? A lot of times. (laughs) Is it still the case that Trump needs Pence 
just to function as a candidate, because we have all these Republicans like Ted Cruz and John McCain who say he's basically the sauce that makes the Trump dish edible for them. Yeah, I think he's put up a pivotal role in the sense that he is the de facto liaison to the institutional wing of the Republican Party, right? So he he's the one who's sort of sitting down with Cruz and can talk to him principle to principle, politician to politician about the importance of endorsing Trump. He did something similar with John McCain. That is really his role. And, you know, it's a, it's a very symbiotic deal. Trump gets somebody who can sort of do the donor cultivation and the fence mending with the party that he doesn't want to do and tends to get to build relationships with donors uh, that he didn't have before. Let me turn to Hillary Clinton and to Tim Kaine. Does Hillary's stature and all the experience she have make the kind of Cheney-like vice presidency really hard for Tim Kaine? Or, because this is a theory I have, is she so self-possessed and confident that she's exactly the kind of president who would empower a number two because she wouldn't view it as a threat to her presidency? I think of it sort of less in terms of Hillary Clinton and more of the unique role of a former president rejoining the White House. I mean, it's going to be hard to imagine a scenario, even if it's, uh, you know, unofficial, in which Bill Clinton is not her most important number two in that administration. Such a smart point. And so anyone who accepted that role, and of course, every Democrat wanted that role because it's your best route to becoming president eventually, yeah. uh, kind of made this Faustian deal that, you know, you're going to be a vice president in an administration with two Two, essentially two presidents. And of course, Hillary Clinton has kind of played down how much uh, a role her husband would have. But anyone who knows Bill Clinton knows he's not going to be picking out the White House China. So I would say that Tim Kaine has had to be sort of comfortable with that. I think, you know, Hillary would certainly accept a, a partner and advice as she did in the Senate. You saw her working with Republicans. She's happy to field anyone's advice. I'm sure she would bring him in. I think she personally likes him a lot, and that chemistry makes a big difference. But I remember from her writing and the emails that came mm -hmm. out that Hillary kind of uniquely understood what it was like to feel kind of frozen out from the West Wing. Right. When she was at the Department of State, she was constantly seemingly agonized by cabinet meetings or, or and, and the White House's control of, of foreign policy. So wouldn't she be sympathetic to a vice president's need to feel in the loop, wanted and empowered? She would either feel sympathetic or she would feel like I have the top job now and I can freeze out whoever I want. <laughs> right. But I would point much more, much more than how she felt as a cabinet secretary than to what she saw unfold with the Gore dynamic. You know, remember, she saw this relationship firsthand when Bill Clinton and Al Gore had just a magical chemistry in 92, these two young Southern governors, you know, hitting the road together. Um, and then in the White House, their relationship really frayed. You know, of course, Hillary Clinton wanted an office in the West Wing where Al Gore would have traditionally gone. So she very much understands the role of the co-presidency and the vice presidency. And she saw that relationship with Gore deteriorate to the point, of course, Gore didn't even want to be associated with Bill Clinton when he ran for his own presidential campaign and then really tarnished Bill Clinton's, you know, opportunity to make himself a Reagan-esque figure by not getting elected. You know, Bill Clinton harbors a lot of hard feelings about being unable to continue his legacy by getting his own vice president elected. But of course, his vice president didn't want to be seen with him after the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Whoa. And in a fascinating twist, Al Gore will be hitting the campaign trail for Hillary Clinton. What? I know, in the coming As weeks. As was first reported, Amy, in our New York Times. As story. was first reported in the New York Times. So, Jonathan, did Hillary do to Al Gore what Bill Clinton may be about to do to Tim Kaine? Um, yeah. I 
don't think so. Uh, and here's part of the reason why. Tim Kaine is a beloved figure among staffers, and staffers have a lot of power when it comes to things like access and decision-making meetings in the White House. And I think Kaine's relationship with a lot of the Hillary staffers who are going to be in the West Wing is a pretty good one. And also, I would add to that, I think his demeanor, you know, he's not somebody who, like Gore, who, you know, could sort of come off as somebody who, yeah, at times could be, could be a little bit grating, or Biden, who, for, for all of his charm, also can wear on people. Kane's demeanor is such that people want to have him in the room. And so I think that that will help him out. But you know, he's also a veteran politician. He gets the joke. He knows that Bill and Hillary Clinton have got a, you know, 30-year relationship with Washington people, and they know how government works, and they're going to operate in their own sphere. But he will have his own niche. I can, you know, for example, Latin America will probably be his thing. He speaks Spanish, and he obviously spent time in Central America. So I, I think he'll be okay, and um, it'll be more of a traditional tertiary role for a vice president. It won't be Cheney. You know, he's going to be somebody who finds a place or two where he can really focus on. But you know, otherwise, I think he's going to be glad to have the opportunity to be there. But Jonathan makes a really good point about Kane's likability. You know, when I was d- kind of reporting out who she would choose as her running mate, we were thinking of battleground states or demographics. Does she need a Latino? Does she need a woman? And it ended up, no, she just needs someone really likable. You know, when Tim Kaine is on the campaign trail with her, it is hard not to like him. And in, in turn, he really helps a candidate who she struggled with her likability and trust numbers. I mean, he comes off as Michael, we wrote in our story, as sort of a sitcom dad. It's just hard not to like him. And I think he's the same way from what I've heard from aides in, in private. Well, likable until he starts interrupting during a debate. But we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. <laughs> I'll interrupt you to get back to that. I want to I want to ask you both about the the very idea of becoming a vice president. Nobody grows up and says, I want to be the vice president. They want to be the president. They want the big enchilada. And my question is, do both of these guys, Mike Pence and Tim Kaine, see this as kind of a, you know, a pit stop on the Jersey Turnpike journey to the White House? Do they want the presidency themselves? Both of them want to be president. I have no doubt about that. I mean, they're, they're career politicians. They're, they're filled with the ambition and drive. We were talking earlier about how both of them have kind of uh, dulled their kind of natural ideological tendencies for the purposes of uh, winning high office. I think certainly both of them see this as a means to an end. Tim Kaine has wanted to be vice president for so long. Really? I mean, Obama, he was a top choice when Obama was, you know, yeah. considering who to pick in 2008, yeah. uh, got passed over. And President Obama's always kind of liked him and had a soft spot for him since he, from a traditionally conservative state of Virginia, endorsed Obama early on. Obama, of course, won Virginia. And so I think he has been, you know, unlike Hillary Clinton, who, you know, had Obama, some I never thought he would, but had somehow picked her, you know, everybody would have known she wants to be president. I think Tim Kaine is a little bit different. He's never run his own presidential campaign. A lot of times vice presidential picks are losing primary candidates, and he hasn't. He's actually been gunning for vice president for a very long time. Well, and that's why Cheney had the influence he had, because he wasn't viewed as a political threat. And so if that is the case with Tim Kaine, that could really assist him in building a big, meaningful portfolio. Well, certainly it assists in the relationship. Hillary doesn't feel like this is somebody who's been bashing me for six months in a primary and now, you know, needs my coattails to get elected. But she also gets the fact that he is significantly younger than her and that he would love to run someday, too. Um, Now, if he starts making noises about doing it, 
2019, that could be a problem. I was actually talking about that the other day to a longtime Clinton friend. I said, um, so like, is there any doubt that if she does win, that she would run again uh, in, in 2020? Uh, or would she think about, you know, depending upon the circumstances and her popularity, you know, would it be better for the party to cede it to Kane? You know? And this person looked at me and said, no way. She is running for re-election no matter what. There's no way the Clintons would get back in the White House and then, and then, and then willingly give it up in four years. So as promised, I'm going to take us back to Monday Night's Vice presidential debate. What do we learn from this extremely testy, interrupty confrontation about how temperamentally these two guys would occupy the White House as vice president? I thought the debate said much more about what the Clinton campaign needed Tim Kaine to do than his own personal temperament. I mean, people who know him like Jonathan and have seen him over the years saw sort of a different person on stage. You know, he's usually kind of the jovial, uh, mild-mannered guy. Um, clearly, he was tasked with just relentlessly interrupting Pence. You know, the, Cl- the Clinton campaign very much wanted him to try to get Pence to answer for comments Trump has made. And if he didn't answer for them, you know, they were prepared with the the video immediately after the, the debate saying not even his running mate can defend uh, Donald Trump's comments. And so Tim Kaine went out there tasked with a job, and that's the job he did somewhat effectively. Yeah, I totally agree. He was on assignment, as they say. I uh, emailed with a Kaine person before the debate that afternoon, and he said, you know, what are you guys looking for here? What, what's kind of the game plan? And there was not much uh, time between my email and the response. And the response was, um, will he answer for Trump and will he defend Trump? So, yeah, that was entirely the purpose of this. And if that meant Tim Kaine having to jump out of his skin a little bit and act like somebody other than Tim Kaine, he was willing to do it. Although I, I have to say, I think that the Clinton campaign would have been better off had they been more cognizant of Tim Kaine's strengths. And I think Kaine could have actually even made Pence pay more of a price for Trump's comments had had Kaine approached Pence in more of a in sorrow rather than anger type fashion, which is to say, you know, turn him, look him in the eye and say, Mike, I know you. You wouldn't call a woman Miss Piggy. Come on. Like, how do you how do you account for that? Fascinating. You wouldn't do that, would you? I think Pence would have felt so much more heat, guys, if it had been that approach rather than just like the laundry list of, you know, one, two, three, four, five oppo heads. Knowing what we know about the past two administrations, which model for the partnership seems to be most effective? Is it the Dick Cheney, George Bush model where a kind of a vulnerability is answered with such an empowered vice president? Is it more the Obama-Biden model where a very self-confident vice president makes real room for his number two? What do you think, Jonathan? I think the Obama-Biden model has been pretty effective where you've got a vice president who is at the table, who is involved with some of the final decision-making, who has access to the principal, and who is able to kind of represent the president when a president can't be there. But there's never a question about who's actually in charge. Right. I mean, ultimately, voters are voting for the person at the top of the ticket. So when you have a 
Bush-Cheney situation, I mean, there was a lot of, I think, unease with that relationship because at the end of the day, Cheney wasn't who the country voted for. Um, I think Biden and Obama clearly, you know, Biden was picked to kind of give experience and a white working class uh, cred to the to the ticket in 2008, but it's turned into a seemingly warm and functioning relationship. Um, and, and also Biden has been, you know, politically very good for Obama. When you see him on the campaign trail, he's an incredibly effective surrogate. He's an incredibly effective messenger. Certainly his personal story is compelling. I think Joe Biden and Michelle Obama are two of Hillary Clinton's kind of most valuable surrogates right now. In the White House, we all sort of learned this lesson. The last person to have a conversation with the president is the most powerful, and it's not always the vice president. So, Jonathan, in the Trump White House, is the last conversation going to be Mike Pence, or is it going to be Ivanka Trump or her husband, Jared? be a member of the Trump family. I think that's been proven during the course of this campaign. And I think for Hillary Clinton, it would probably be Bill Clinton. What do you say, Amy? I'd say it's always a spouse. You know, at the end of the day, if Michelle Obama gives gives Barack some advice, he's probably going to listen. Um, but in this case, the spouse happens to be a former president who's incredibly invested in policy and his own legacy. So 100%, he would be the one she turns to. God, tricky situations here. Amy, Jonathan... Thank you very much, guys. Thanks. <laughs> it's time to check back in on the state of the race with Nate Cohn. Nate, what's the number? The number is three. What is it? That is how much better Hillary Clinton is doing in the polls since the first presidential debate. Is that a big post-debate bounce? It is. It's a bit above the average. It would go down as probably the second or third largest post-debate bump in the, the modern polling era. So it's pretty good. Gives her a five-point lead now, which is a lot better than a two- or a three-point lead. So three points is where her lead was before the debate and where it is now. Three points is the amount she's improved. She was probably up two or three before. Maybe now she's up five or six today. Does that mean America thinks Hillary Clinton won the first debate? Well, it definitely helped her. The one thing that I think is really clear is that it has energized Democrats. More Democratic-leaning voters are being considered likely voters by the polls. And that's really important for Hillary Clinton because she depends on a high turnout among black and Hispanic voters, especially in states like Florida and North Carolina, where I would note she's had some of her best results of the year in the last week. And what's really interesting is that her bounce appears to get a little bit bigger over time. The most recent polls have actually been better for her than the ones conducted immediately afterwards. And all of them have shown gains. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. We'll see you back here on Tuesday. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com NYT. That's netsuite.com NYT.